You are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to GI Insights, where we cover the latest clinical issues, trends, and technologies in gastroenterological practice. GI Insights is brought to you by AGA Institute and sponsored by Takeda Pharmaceuticals North America. Your host for GI Insights is Professor of Medicine and Director of the Digestive Disease Center at the Medical University of South Carolina, Dr. Mark DeLegge. It's 10 years between colonoscopies for average risk patients and effective use of resources, or should colonoscopies be repeated at a shorter interval to better detect lesions? Joining us for a point-counterpoint discussion about the 10-year interval for colonoscopies is Dr. Andrew Chan, Assistant Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School and Assistant in Medicine in the Gastrointestinal Unit at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. Also joining us is Dr. David Lieberman, Professor of Medicine and Chief of the Division of Gastroenterology at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon. Welcome both David and Andrew. Thank you. Thanks. So just to set this up for the audience, David, you're going to be, this is David Lieberman, you're going to be in favor of the 10-year interval, and Andrew, you're going to be in favor of a less than 10-year interval. So I'm going to start with David. David, why do you think that a 10-year interval, which is what we do now for normal risk patients, is sufficient? Well, if we, if we go back first and examine the rationale for coming up with this interval, we all have to acknowledge that it's really not evidence-based. It's largely based on indirect evidence, but I think that the indirect evidence is pretty compelling. And the type of evidence we're talking about is epidemiologic evidence, which has suggested for a long time that there's roughly a 10-year gap between the development of adenomas and the development of colorectal cancer. There's evidence from a case control study using sigmoidoscopy, which found that patients who had had prior sigmoidoscopies had a protective effect in that portion of the colon that was examined for at least 10 years. And then there's been another study from Canada, which has suggested roughly the same for colonoscopy. So we don't have the ideal study that we would like to have, which would have been some sort of follow-up of patients who had a baseline screening colonoscopy that was negative and then had a follow-up exam at 10 years to know what the rate of significant findings might be at that 10 years. The other piece of indirect evidence that we have that it may be reasonable is data that we have at a five-year interval after a negative colonoscopy. So we have several studies in which patients had a baseline screening colonoscopy, which was normal, and then had a follow-up within five years. And the largest uh, is a study by Imperial that was published this past year. And what that study found was that at five years, only 1.3% of the cohort that he studied had a significant neoplasia or advanced neoplasia at that five-year interval, which suggested that five years at least appears to be very safe and reasonable. And then extrapolating the indirect data that I mentioned, 10 years also seems to be reasonable. So, David, in that particular study, the last one you mentioned, this was a five-year colonoscopy after the initial colonoscopy. That is correct, in over 1,200 subjects. Andrew, you've heard what David has to say. What do you have to say about the interval between colonoscopies and normal risk patients? Well, I think that the, you know, the data that David describes is obviously, uh, you know, very important data, and I think it does provide some basis for the current recommendations. The area that I think there is some disagreement in is really whether the strength of the indirect evidence is enough to really support a 10-year interval. 
I think for many patients, it probably is sufficient to support a tenure interval, but I think there are a lot of patients for whom we don't really know what the likelihood of having no significant neoplasia is within less than 10 years from a negative colonoscopy. So I think it's difficult to really generalize, which is, I think, what we've been striving to do with current recommendations. We don't really necessarily know what the natural history of adenoma progression is precisely. I think we've sort of guessed that adenomas progress at a fairly slow rate from adenoma to cancer. But I think there is a proportion of adenomas that probably progress more rapidly from the adenoma stage to carcinoma. And I don't think we necessarily know for which patients and which types of adenomas may progress rapidly from the adenoma stage to carcinoma. So I think that uncertainty does make the current recommendation of a 10-year interval a little bit hard to really support for all patients, because I think there probably are some patients for whom, you know, more frequent screening may be a more reasonable option. David, on that, with regards to colonoscopy, I've read a lot of data regarding the fact that uh, colonoscopy is a very good tool, but that perhaps we're missing lesions, especially uh, proximal lesions. Do you buy into that? I certainly buy into the fact that colonoscopy is less than perfect, and we have several lines of evidence that I think support that statement. First, that from large clinical trials, which were largely chemoprevention trials that were performed in the 1990s, patients who had adenomas were enrolled in these studies. They had colonoscopy, complete polypectomy, and then had follow-up within, usually within three years. And those studies find that 03 to 0.9% of those patients had developed a cancer within that short time period, despite having what we would call a clearing colonoscopy. And there are three possible reasons, I think, for that to happen, maybe more. One is the possibility that Andrew mentioned, which is that some patients may develop neoplasia more rapidly than others because of uh, genetic abnormalities and mutations that they acquire. Second is that lesions detected at baseline may have been incompletely removed. But I think the third and most compelling is the possibility that lesions were missed on the baseline exam. And supporting that hypothesis, we have CT colonography studies, which compared CT and optical colonoscopy in a very clever method to examine the colon. And what those studies find is that even expert colonoscopists who know that they're being assessed at the time of colonoscopy for their performance miss 2 to 12% of lesions greater than one centimeter. So I think that we have to accept that colonoscopy is less than perfect, that lesions may be missed, and interval cancers can develop. And I think that probably does drive some of the clinical practice that Andrew was mentioning, that uncertainty that we feel about this 10-year interval, knowing that in some cases we might miss important lesions. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to GI Insights from ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Mark DeLegge. And joining me for a point-counterpoint discussion about the 10-year interval for colonoscopies is Dr. Andrew Chan, Assistant Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School and Assistant in Medicine in the Gastrointestinal Unit at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. Also joining us is Dr. David Lieberman, Professor of Medicine and Chief of the Division of Gastroenterology at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon. So, Andrew, I'm back on this subpopulation, I'll call it, where perhaps they may need more frequent colonoscopies. Is there anything today that you can put your finger on that would say, yeah, 
this is someone I'm going to bring back at a perhaps five-year interval versus a 10-year interval, besides the obvious. I mean, is it, or do you know of some genetic testing coming out that will help us with that? At this point in time, we know, you know, obviously, if you have a family history, you should bring people back earlier. And I think that's a part of the guidelines that I don't think anyone disputes. But aside from family history, I mean, I think we need to be cognizant that there are other risk factors for colon cancer that exist at a fairly high prevalence in the population uh, for whom, you know, we maybe do need to individualize our screening regimen. We, at this point, know that there may be a differential behavior of patients who tend to get right-sided adenomas. And, uh, you know, as David mentioned, it does look like colonoscopy may be relatively less protective against right-sided cancers, you know, even based on the indirect evidence. And it looks as if, at least from epidemiological data, that older women tend to get more of these right-sided cancers and it may be that it could be related to some molecular features of the tumors that may predispose these tumors uh, in terms of growing faster. We know that uh, on the right side, tumors tend to have more microsatellite instability. And we know from the, our experience with patients with Lynch syndrome or familial colorectal cancer that patients with this type of, of mutation in their cancers tend to develop cancers at a faster rate and tend to develop cancers that are a little bit more difficult to detect. They tend to be flatter. They tend to be less polypoid. So they're much more difficult sometimes for the colonoscopist to detect them. And so those could easily be missed, you know, even on a perfect colonoscopy. So, you know, I think there are some basic features that may define a group of patients that may be at more risk for developing cancers uh, at a faster rate. Some of that, I think, could be defined by you know, demographic factors, epidemiological risk factors, and some of that may be defined by some of the molecular characteristics of the tumors. I don't think we're yet at the stage where we can universally test tumors for molecular features that define prognosis, but I think we're getting close. And some of the tests down the pipeline may include testing for things like microsatellite instability, mismatch repair proteins, things like that, which do define, I think, a particular subtype of cancers. You know, it seems to be a relatively small percentage of, of cancer, so it's not clear that that's going to be the answer, but I think we're sort of headed in that general direction. And just one thing I wanted to add to, to David's point, I think David did mention the studies that were done of the colonoscopy chemoprevention studies, and again, those did find a fairly high prevalence of recurrent advanced adenoma and cancers after just three years, and those are really colonoscopies that were probably done under pretty ideal circumstances because these were all patients that were enrolled in a clinical trial. So, you know, I think there is an argument to be made that we do need to make sure that our colonoscopies are the highest possible quality exams and that, you know, the patients have the best potential clearing procedure at baseline. But I think we also need to know that even under ideal circumstances, there is a miss rate that's inherent to colonoscopy. So I think the combination of that inherent miss rate and also the fact that there probably is a subpopulation of patients that, you know, develop adenomas or cancer that may progress more rapidly than 10 years, I think does suggest that there are, you know, certain individuals that may benefit from more frequent screening than every 10 years. Well, David, I have to ask the proverbial elephant in the living room here. If we decide we're going to go ahead to do more frequent colonoscopies, even, we'll say, in a smaller group, what does that do to the economics of the model for colon cancer screening? It has a definite impact because if colonoscopy is used as the primary screening test, it's the most expensive of the screening tests. And if we do it more often, that obviously drives up the cost. I think that if you said, well, what if we were to do colonoscopy every five years in everybody? 
and we extrapolated the data from the Imperial study, which is probably the largest study to date in average risk individuals who had a negative baseline colonoscopy. Well, the yield from that would be very low. And based on that study alone, the number needed to endoscope to identify a patient with an advanced adenoma would be more than 75 procedures. And so that that puts it into the realm where you're going to be doing a lot of procedures with very little benefit for patients. I think we lack the ideal risk stratification tool. And I agree with Andrew that there probably are a subset of patients who have a higher risk for a variety of different reasons. Unfortunately, we just don't have the tools today to identify that higher risk population well enough to recommend that they come back earlier. But I think that for most individuals, the risk is sufficiently low that bringing them back at five years, I think, would be too early for most individuals. The data also that I cited for interval cancers, keep in mind that that's coming from studies in which the enrollment into the study required that the patient have an adenoma. So these were not patients that had a negative baseline colonoscopy. These were patients that had a neoplastic lesion. So they already had whatever it takes to develop neoplasia in their colon. The average risk person with a negative colonoscopy probably has a lower risk for interval cancers than those individuals, but that's the data we're lacking currently. Well, gentlemen, thank you for some tremendous insight into what I had considered just to be normal screening colonoscopy. I would like to thank my guests from the Harvard Medical School, Dr. Andrew Chan, and from the Oregon Health and Science University, Dr. David Lieberman. Dr. Chan and Dr. Lieberman, thank you very much for being our guests this week on GI Insights. Thank you for having us. Thank you. My pleasure. You have been listening to GI Insights on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. GI Insights is brought to you by AGA Institute and sponsored by Takeda Pharmaceuticals North America Incorporated. For additional information on this program and on-demand podcasts, visit us at ReachMD.com and use promo code AGA. Takeda Pharmaceuticals North America is proud to sponsor this important and quality programming for ReachMD listeners. Takeda does not control the editorial content of this broadcast. The views expressed are solely those of the guests who are selected by the AGA Institute. Based in Deerfield, Illinois, Takeda Pharmaceuticals North America is a wholly owned subsidiary of Takeda Pharmaceutical Company Limited, the largest pharmaceutical company in Japan. In the United States, Takeda markets products for diabetes, insomnia, wakefulness, and gastroenterology, and is developing products in the areas of diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and other conditions. Takeda is committed to striving toward better health for individuals and progress in medicine by developing superior pharmaceutical products. To learn more about the company and its products, visit www.tpna.com.